the biggest thread and the most important tool is the person sitting behind the keyboard. Hello, I'm Dave Gans, MGMA Senior Fellow for Industry Affairs, welcoming you to the executive session, a monthly discussion with a healthcare leader on a critical issue of interest to medical practice executives. Over the past year, healthcare executives have read numerous journal and news articles describing how healthcare organizations suffered cyber attacks, infiltrating their information technology systems and stealing vast amounts of employee or patient information. Worse yet, some organizations had malware inserted into their information systems, freezing their entire IT infrastructure until the organization either paid a ransom to an anonymous attacker or reconstructed its entire system. The fact that any system can be a victim is reinforced by the recent news that multiple United States government agencies were hacked by Russian agents who surreptitiously collected information for months without being detected. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Marion Jenkins, FHIMSS, a founding partner of Health Spaces, a consulting firm that focuses on helping healthcare organizations define and successfully execute a viable technology strategy. Marion is a nationally recognized author and speaker with master's and PhD degrees in mechanical engineering from Stanford University. Marion has decades of experience in strategy and build out of healthcare IT and business technology projects and is the ideal person to describe how organizations can protect their IT systems and to protect a response in the event they are a victim of a cyber attack. Marion, can you please introduce yourself and describe how Health Spaces supports MGMA members and their practices? Thanks, Dave, for that uh, great introduction. We focus on independent physician practices, primarily helping them deal with all of the intricacies and confusion. The The issues are getting worse. They're getting more complex. They're getting the, the risks are bigger, and we try to help them navigate those things. Uh, unfortunately, there's a big tendency to create a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, what we refer to as FUD, around these issues and help practices with with rational approaches, particularly focusing on clinical operations and helping clinicians so that they can get still get their job done, see patients, deliver good patient care, and not have technology get in the way. Now, let's begin with an overview of how cyber attacks occur and how medical practices can protect themselves. In September, you authored a Medical Insights article, Don't Be a Teleworking Crash Dummy, which really focused on the most important and effective security tool is the person at the keyboard. Uh, This article described many of the ways that cyber attacks occur and ways a practice can minimize its risks of compromising its IT system. Before we get into specifics, uh, Marion can give us a short overview of cybercrime and the problems that medical practices are experiencing. Sure. They they really run the spectrum from somebody who might just be trying to convince somebody in accounting to pay a, an invoice that's not owed, you know, stealing a little bit of money. That's kind of at the low end of things to the high end of things of, of installing ransomware, as you mentioned, which has become much more prevalent where there's hundreds of thousands of dollars or even millions of dollars plus the threat of, of uh, public exposure. And, you know, it's called ransomware because they're basically holding the practice or the, uh, the entity, the covered entity, they're holding them hostage by locking their data 
and making it inoperable or inaccessible and then threatening to expose them. So it runs the whole gamut. And, and sometimes the lower level crimes or the lower level breaches are designed to test defenses or maybe even breach a system and then uh, work quietly to, uh, to infiltrate it over a period of time to where they are kind of at a point of no return. So it runs the whole spectrum. Marion, you know, I was most interested in your MGMA Insights article, especially how it described how cybercrime is really a business. And many of the perpetrators of cyber attacks and scams really are a business. They've got a boss, they have salaries, bonuses, you know, and these businesses create threats tailored to every market and circumstance. Can you give some more examples on the different cyber attacks that are being designed to profit the perpetrator? They are real businesses with career ladders and for as far as we know, you know, clocking in and salaries and performance bonuses and those kinds of things. And in many areas of the world, these jobs are actually good, you know, above average income earning jobs that are available. They're we sometimes refer to them as white collar, which is kind of a misnomer because IT people don't wear collars, they wear t-shirts. But bottom line is these are professional positions. They recruit for them, they train, they have career ladders. And they range, they range, as you pointed out, they range from selling a product but then not delivering it. There was a quite a few scams around PPE, personal protective equipment which was, you know, supposedly passed on or approved by the FDA, which really wasn't. They would sell large quantities of this and then not deliver. So, you know, those are just sort of traditional consumer fraud or business fraud things that were perpetrated over computers. And then all the way to the other end of of ransomware, as we've already talked about, one in the middle, which we've seen a lot of uh, over the years, is where somebody will spoof an email address and and say uh, they'll send something to somebody in accounts payable, usually from the looking like it came from the CEO or the CFO of a practice, saying, uh, please give me five gift cards from, from Costco or from Walmart. Uh, it's a secret. It's, I want to give them out today at lunch at a special employee event. Please buy the cards and give me the numbers. And those are, you know, the money goes out the door and, and, and it's gone. And no, you, you can't go back from an IT standpoint find out who it was or trace it or to do it or frankly even report it because by then they're they've covered their tracks and they moved on with other with other email addresses and so on. I've also read some of the PPP, the Correct. HF protection program where the uh, the government is now finding fraud where the organizations or people impersonated businesses drew their PPP loans and then disappeared. Yeah. And the business, we only found when the business later attempted to apply themselves and found that their loan had already been instigated and the money provided online to somebody, right. not them. Yeah, they're the, and, and now that we have a second round of, of PPP and other relief efforts, you're going to see that again perpetrated both against businesses as well as individuals because, you know, individuals are going to be getting another stimulus uh, check and so that's another opportunity for people to call up and say, "Hey, did you get your check yet?" Oh, I didn't get your check. Well, you know, if you give me your social security number, I'm with the IRS and I can expedite that. And of course, that's not the way the system is going to work. But unsuspecting people, they make it sound very legitimate. There's going to be another round of those fraudulent kinds of things. 
Uh, besides a tax designed to fool a practice in the paying up false invoice or a product it didn't need, or impersonating the practice to receive funds, we, what I really uh, have read so much about are the devastating attacks where the information system is infiltrated and frozen with the cyber criminal demanding a ransom. Uh, Marion, can you give me some insight? How does this occur and what can you do about it? Right. So this year, now you're, now you're describing the high-end crime, which has become very, very prevalent uh, at hospitals and medical practices, and that's ransomware, where they gain access to the system, usually through some kind of what's frequently referred to as social engineering, somebody inadvertently giving access to a computer system. It could be somebody who's calling in and saying, you know, I'm with your transcription company. I need my password changed or various ways that that people can gain access to to a password or to a user account. Passwords are very weak, generally speaking, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, or password are still some of the most common passwords that are in use uh, out, out there. So if they can if they can guess from your email address what your username might be and then use a frequent frequently used password maybe they can gain access, then they use that access to install specific software that goes out and encrypts or locks up the data uh, across the network. And the very first thing it does once they fire this off is it goes out to every network share that it can find. So if you think about like a, a typical practice administrator who has access to multiple drives on the network, the ransomware will go out and try to find every one of those directories, every one of those folders and lock up that data and render it uh, completely inoperable. And so that, that's really how it works. Also, some of the ransomware attacks are designed to specifically go look for and see if there's any anti-malware system uh, somewhere on the network and uh, disable or defeat that, turn it off if it can. I think the, the extent of the infiltration of this malware, I remember reading an article short, recently about the problems at uh, University Medicine Vermont, UVM-V, uh, which uh, is recovering from its ransomware attack. However, it infiltrated something over 15,000 laptops and computers, as well as over 1,000 servers, and each of which had to be reconstructed. So right. this it can be in a large organization. It literally, it will affect every every element of the system. And, and I've even heard where the malware can actually now be inserted into medical devices, which can again clean everything else up, and then it comes right back again. Yeah, that, yeah, that's correct. And and what it does is, like I said, the first thing it looks for is you know the whole purpose of having a computer network is so that you can work together and you can collaborate and you can be in one office and access the data that might be in another office and so it takes advantage of that fact takes advantage of that connectivity and and goes out and searches for every share the more senior or the more um, credentials or security clearance that a person has up and down the food chain and, and typically in a medical practice a physician or the practice CEO or CFO they tend to have access to everything so if they can gain access to one of those accounts and then spread that across all all of the network shares and everything that 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 practice has 
the very first thing, if there's a suspected attack, the, the absolute most critical thing, just like in a stroke where minutes or even seconds are critical, the most important thing is to physically disconnect and turn off those devices. Unfortunately, the natural tendency to say is to say, hey, there's something wrong with this computer. I think I'm going to troubleshoot it. And so people, you know, they'll reboot it. They'll mess around with it. They'll see if it's got the latest Windows updates and stuff like that. Every, every minute that that computer is connected to the network gives that ransomware more ability to go out and find more shares to be encrypted. So literally the very first thing that needs to be done is turn off, physically disconnect those devices and set them aside, especially those that are, that are known or suspected to be infected. Now, your September article talked about the first line of defense, which is educating your staff uh, not to open up uh, un, you know, unusual emails and our programs that require uh, a launch without, you know, knowing the program. Tell us a little bit more about this and how a, pra- how in a practice can educate its staff and also other things that you can do. So it, it is and always has been uh, some kind of payload that would either look legitimate or look interesting. So, for example, you know, we had the, the Nashville bombing on Christmas Day. You know, news items. These these perpetrators. Again, keep in mind these are these are professional IT people that are going to work, saying how can we trick people in the United States and other countries into opening things. And so, uh, you know, they'll take a current news event or a current issue, PPP, the new uh, stimulus, the second round of stimulus, uh, COVID vaccines, anything that can be used to craft an email that somebody might open in a, in, a, in a clinical setting. Yeah, education is a really big part of it. There are systems that now are available where you can, in essence, troll or, or, or help your employees automatically by crafting your, your own kind of fake emails and use those as training experiences. And these are becoming more, more common, more prevalent because for every scenario that you can come up with to to help educate your employees you just cannot cover everything because they 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 are are so convincing in fact we'll have we we've had situations where uh, our our clients will forward us an email and say i clicked on this and this looks weird it's like holy cow why did you click on it so there are systems now that do that automatically and uh, but it's it's not a real virus, or it's not a real um, uh, it's not real ransomware. But it's designed to ferret those things out. And frankly, you're kind of having to make examples out of some of the employees, and and then use that as an experience for others. Now, besides educating your staff about how to avoid opening a ransomware request, or where it has surreptitiously inserted uh, some sort of malware malware virus. Are there software and administrative solutions that a practice can use to protect itself or recover? Well, when you get into recovery, so what I was just describing was sort of prevention. And again, you know, we, we, we can use the medical example of prevention and recovery are, are, both, are both needed and they go hand in hand. So when you get into recovery, now there's things that you need to do to make sure your systems are properly backed up. And almost everybody, if you ask them, do you have backups, they will say, of course, you know, we have backups and stuff. But that's, that's not the whole story. Uh, and to give an example, 
Remember I described the way uh, ransomware works. It goes out and tries to find all of the other connected files and folders and directories and everything else that are connected to the network. If your backups are connected, meaning uh, let's say you do daily backups, and if you have a, a, a ransomware attack and you don't discover it within one day, then when your backups are done that night, it will encrypt and destroy all of your all of your backups, at least your daily backups. And so you have to balance having your backups being not just done on a routine basis, but being taken offline, meaning they're not connected to anything. And so, you you know, if you have daily backups and you have a virus, a, a ransomware episode, and you don't detect it for three days, you're going to have to go back four days, theoretically in this case, to find uh, a, a, a data that has not been corrupted. So, <clears throat> yes, there's things on the front end you can do. Uh, like I described, where you're kind of testing people's behavior. And then on the back end, you have to have a very carefully designed and well-understood backup scenario that keeps the data out of harm's way. You know, you mentioned how so many cyber attacks are surreptitious. You don't, well, how can a practice leader identify, have they been attacked? Or what are some of the characteristics of an attack uh, before they actually freeze your system or you get, uh, or you find out that uh, there is patient information now being posted on the dark web. So, what can you do to understand? It, did something happen, and how do you stop it? Un unfortunately, the symptoms of an attack are very similar to just <clears throat> normal IT systems. Of, you know, a software update didn't work right, or maybe the network is sluggish. And and like I said, people will typically say, "Well, I'm going to reboot my computer." you know, just try something else. The best thing they can do is immediately stop what they're doing and call whatever their support is, whether it's internal support or whether it's an outside firm. They they need to stop and alert people that there's something going on. One of the other things that I point out in the article that's that's made worse by this is if you if you're in a billing department in a in a clinic, in a physician's clinic and there's six or seven people and somebody has something pop up on their screen or their computer's acting funny, they can say, hey, Betty, this is kind of weird. Are you seeing this? And Betty can say, no, I'm not seeing that. Well, now Betty is working at her kitchen table uh, and she's isolated from her coworkers. And so there's no context of other people there. And, and again, perpetrators know this, the, the bad guys know this. And so they've been able to take advantage of the fact that users are more isolated and they're more likely to, um, you know, try different things and not, not, not stop what they're doing and not call IT support. You mentioned you had a client who suffered a ransomware attack and it's, they in, did not pay the ransom and they were able to completely eliminate the virus and restore its full IT uh, system. And, uh, you know, this is more unusual because in virtually all the ransomware attacks I've read uh, that they ought, they end up not being able to fully do a restore and they end up paying the ransom. Uh, so what did this client do before the attack? And also how did they recover uh, so that they were able to do all of this? Well, we, first off, there was a very close coordination and, and working daily with clients and with the users and so on where they knew to report, you know, unusual issues. And as if I recall, 
this particular attack occurred on a clinic day, either a Monday or a Tuesday, if I recall, early in the morning. So it was fairly busy and it, it impacted a bunch of people. And we were able to get in touch with the, the clinic and with the clinic executives and convince them that the best thing they needed to do to stop the spread of the attack was to turn off all their systems, which if you think about it, you know, that's one of the last things that you want to do in a busy clinic is to turn off all your computers. But we had, we had had the discussions before we had done a lot of HIPAA security work with them and training and things. So there was a history there of trust uh, on both sides that uh, allowed that to happen. Then secondly, once we took those systems offline, we were able to examine those systems in an offline state and see to the extent that they had been compromised. And at the same time, go back through their backups, which as I had said before, you know, you need offline backups and determined that uh, I think two days prior was a, was a good backup. And we began to, in parallel with cleaning up the front end of the, of the workstations and laptops and so on that were compromised, we began to rebuild the system from from the from the backside from uh, from the backups. So it was a combination of of all of those things: rapid response, turning the systems off, dis disconnecting them from the network, and then rebuilding them from uh, from the ground up from from a good backups so that were not encrypted. We were able to restore the client within about 24 hours. They were able to function, and all of the providers were uh, were pretty much functional with their EMR and their other main systems. It took several more days to get the rest of the clinic and the rest of the systems up and running uh, through email and so on. And then, in addition to that, that clinic then uh, didn't stop there. They began to look at their processes and procedures. And they implemented additional uh, security measures, like some of the ones that we've talked about, to strengthen things even further going forward. So they used it as a learning experience as well. You know, it's, it seems that we're in a constant uh, race, you know, where as healthcare organizations become more sophisticated uh, and they enhance their defenses, the cyber criminals find new ways to penetrate their IT system. So, what are some of the elements that in the short term and maybe even in the future, what all medical organizations and their IT suppliers can do to improve their readiness and protect their systems from outside forces? Well, for, I think probably the biggest thing is a mindset of understanding that you, this is, this is not a matter of if you're going to get attacked, this is a matter of when you're going to get attacked. There's companies who, who have not yet experienced it. Um, they're becoming fewer and fewer, but the bottom line is you cannot prevent these. Uh, you have to plan, you have to do everything you can to, to prevent them, but then recognize that you have to have a cure. You have to have, um, you know, a disaster recovery mode or disaster recovery procedures that are well thought out outside of, uh, you know, being in a disaster mode or in an emergency mode that you have to walk through and do tabletop exercises where you're, you're restoring data and you're doing different things uh, and, and even live, uh, live testing as well, which carries its own set of risks. But you have to figure out what your appetite is as an organization for these kinds of things and just be as diligent as possible, recognizing that 
the last thing we want to do is to negatively impact that per patient provider trust and the patient provider care. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of these systems, if you, if you put in a 14 character password and you make people change it every three days and their timeout intervals, you know, every five minutes, you've now negatively impacted patient care and people are going to, uh, they're, they're not going to deal with or, or use those, uh, th those security protocols. They're going to do something else. And so you've kind of defeated yourself. So you've got to do everything you can to make this seamless to users, easy for users. The other thing is vendors come out of the woodwork uh, and they all claim, many of them claim that they have a system that's foolproof. Anybody who says they have a system that's foolproof, um, <clears throat> you can pretty much just forget about even talking to them because there's no such thing. You know, I, I think he had a very, really good analogy when you talked about disaster preparedness. Uh, just like a, a practice that is on the Atlantic or Gulf Seacoast, that they have to recognize that they don't have a hurricane at every year, but they could have one at any year, any year in the future, and they have to have the disaster plans in place, and they should even rehearse their disaster plan in the event they have a major storm. Right. So this, I think the same thing for preparation for a cyber attack. Uh, you may not have had it yet, but it may happen in the future. So you have to rehearse and plan for it because it can happen and will happen eventually. Is there anything else you'd like to add to our discussion today? Just, just that the most important thing is patient care, patient safety, and, and care and trust of those patient records. And so as long as security and these kinds of issues are viewed as, a, as an external have to or a compliance issue, rather than something that just needs to be adopted and, and be part of daily practice. That's probably the biggest issue is just creating a mindset of being careful, a mindset of doing the right thing and not, not view these, these things as, oh crap, now I gotta change my password again. Now I gotta do this, now I gotta do that. Some of those things are going to be necessary. And then I think the other thing is to not rely on IT. This is, this is not an IT issue. This is an operational issue. Technology cannot save us. The biggest threat and the most important tool is the person sitting behind the keyboard, no matter how many firewalls or anti-malware, uh, antivirus or everything else. The, if, if we don't really give that end user the tools and the information they can to be safe, then, then we have failed. And, and, fr and frankly, IT has failed in, in many areas because they tend to focus on, on widgets and products and things like that and not in the holistic sense. So need to get, you know, need to partner with somebody who really understands that this is about operations and not about technology. I, I think excellent comment. Uh, this is, you know, protecting your practice from cyber attack is a leadership issue. And it's, uh, it's what leaders can do to educate their staff and to work closely with their IT uh, internal and external uh, support to prevent the problems. Um, mm -hmm. Marion, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know our listeners are going to find our discussion most interesting. And uh, I'm very pleased I've had the opportunity to talk with you today. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Appreciate it as well. And uh, happy to answer any questions that people may have. It's a, it's not an easy topic and there's a tremendous amount of 
of misinformation um, floating out there. Thank you very much. Thank you.